Hey, today's episode is about a movie called Boys Don't Cry, and it involves some very intense and graphic sexual violence. So I just wanted to warn you before we get started. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette Recaps. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and joining us as always is Peter Sagel. Yeah, no jokes this time. Hello, everybody. Yep, yep, yep. Good call. So we have been recapping movies from 1999. Today we are talking all about Boys Don't Cry, which is based on a true story that happened in 1993 about a trans man named Brandon Tina who was raped and killed. Um, So if that sounds like a story you would rather skip, uh, we completely understand But we are going to have hopefully a helpful conversation about what the movie meant at the time and and how it holds up and how it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, had you guys remind me, had the two of you seen this movie before? Trisha, you have, right? I had seen it ages ago. And I'll be really honest. I did not remember much about it because I think not that I think we should uh, shy away from things that are difficult to look at or talk about, especially Mm -hmm. if we are not a part of those communities that actually have to suffer from mm-hmm. these things that like it's actually important for us to um, try to consume narratives and art that help us understand the experiences of other people I think that can be one of the things movies can do in addition to just being a good time they can also help us understand other people's worlds and I remember thinking that this could potentially do that but I probably saw this movie at least 15 years ago and it had blurred in my memory and uh, re-watching it was really intense yeah yeah yeah, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie that was this devastating, honestly. It, it was weird. We had talked about um, the Blair Witch Project, about how that title at the beginning, you know, this is these people disappeared mm-hmm. in the woods and we found their footage, uh, is was made the movie a horror movie because no matter what happened, you knew that they were all coming to a bad end. And yeah. because I knew the ending of the movie, as you say, based on a real story, so there was no secret even when the movie came out, it felt like a horror movie because as you watched Brandon move through the world and even have his happy moments, which he gets a fair amount of in this movie, mm-hmm. you knew what was coming and it was very hard to watch. Uh, I did the thing that we've all talked about in different contexts for very different reasons of checking how long there mm-hmm. was to go because, yeah. and, and it's so, I mean, how many times can you say this about this movie? It's so sad because yeah. so much of the movie is about Brandon finding his way in the world and finally becoming happy mm-hmm. for what turns out to be very fleeting moments. And and you're watching the movie and you're like, oh, this is so great for Brandon. He, he He's recreated himself in a new place where he's accepted as a man. He finds love. He finds friendship. He's living the life he's always wanted. But you know what's coming for him. And it's just, it was tough. So we only pulled one clip from this film because I think a lot of it is just pretty disturbing to to live through in in audio form. Um, but we did choose one from kind of early on in the movie. This is when Brandon is talking to I think it's his cousin. Let's mm-hmm. let's take a listen. Lonnie, my life is a fucking nightmare. I I got this big court date next week and I, I don't got anywhere to stay. If I don't make it, I'm fucked. Can I have to stay at your house? What about those doctors? I went. That shit's insane. You, you gotta see shrinks. You gotta shoot hormones up your button. I mean, it costs a fuck 
fucking fortune. I'm gonna be, you know, an old man by the time I get that kind of money. You gotta do something because you can't just keep running because you're gonna end up in jail. Forever. You really think I can do it? You're the butch. Now come straight to my house. No stopping in bars, no stealing, and no more girls. No more girls. There are so many things going on in that clip. Aren't there? The fact that Brandon says, you know, oh my God, I'm going to be an old man before I can have, I think he's Mm -hmm. referring to transition surgery or treatment. Uh, The fact that his cousin says no more bars, no more stealing and no more girls when going to a bar and Mm -hmm. stealing and a girl is what's going to get him into the ultimate trouble. Uh, it's just, ah, uh, ma'am. I, I mean, we should just say it. Everybody has been talking about this movie since it came out. The acting is extraordinary. The writing yeah. is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Hilary Swank is amazing. Chloe Sevigny, help me out. Mm-hmm. Sevigny is amazing. And, uh, you know, they, they both got nominated for Oscars. I, I don't remember what the what the reaction to Peter Sarsgaard was, who's, of course, ultimately oh. the villain of the piece. But he's also amazingly good. He's such a convincing villain in this movie yeah. and plays this character in such a chilling way. He, he's yeah. chilling, but he's absolutely human. You guys have yeah. heard me like go on when we're talking about the silliest movie or the funniest movie or the more serious movie, how much I, I like want movies to present people as they actually are and not as movie characters. And mm-hmm. he's, he's a character who you can actually believe is a real human being who really committed the atrocities that he commits what i will say is that i think partly what this movie does so beautifully which is also so heart-wrenching is is just showing how hard all of these people's lives are you know like they are living in rough conditions there's not there's very little upward mobility there's you know i mean that the biggest hope the most audacious thing that they're allowed to think about is the idea of maybe getting paid to do karaoke you know like they, they just can't even fathom getting out of there. None of them can, which I think especially then putting a trans man in that situation is just like, it's it's really hard to watch. I don't know if you guys did reading about the real story uh, I did after watching the movie. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I, I, I just this little detail, I don't know if it's in the movie, but uh, the, the murderer and his friend, the two murderers, were referred to around their town as like the, the, the wall guys or the lean against the wall gang. And the reason was, is because they were all just leaning against the wall of the local convenience store because they had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of world, I mean, it, we should also say that there's a tremendous danger when, you know, filmmakers from the coasts descend on these Midwestern poor towns and make films about the people who live there. And I thought this movie was utterly devoid of any condescension toward those people and instead made with a tremendous degree of sympathy for who they are and the situation they're in, their horizons, what they know, what they don't know, what they want. And I didn't didn't feel like, even when we're talking about the murderers or or Lena's mom, who's maybe one of the more monstrous people in the movie, I mean, there's judgment maybe, but that's like left to us. I don't think the filmmakers are judging them in a way that, would get in the way of us understanding this was real people and it really happened. We do hear that at one point in the movie when they pull up in the car next to the other yes. group of young people who were sort mm-hmm. of maybe the the slightly more popular or fancier kids that they went to high school with. And these characters are... Well, and they're definitely like in the nicer car. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. 
and they say something about them being on the wall or and, the wall people. Oh, right. And that and that sparks the like uh, that sparks that in, you know sort of insane rage in the Peter Sarsgaard character who's like chase him down and they end up getting pulled over by the cops and really mm-hmm. the inciting incident for all the legal trouble in Falls City for Brandon is actually that moment of sort of like high school like drag racing that they have. You just reminded me of something that I hadn't thought of, which is that sequence that then follows of then being, you know, I don't know what the word is, insulted, held in contempt by the people in the other car that leads to the chase. That's the moment the movie starts with, right? It opens with Brandon driving the car and you see his face and and he's grinning because this is as good as his life ultimately gets he's with his friends he's accepted as a man and even though they're in this high energy situation i mean you're right trisha that moment ultimately leads to his downfall and death but that really is the pinnacle of everything he hoped for he's with the girl he loves and his friends and he's a man it's awesome for him at that moment yeah i mean i think there is something in boys don't cry that that gives it so much heart, which is that there are a lot of really beautiful small moments in it. Right. I think especially between Brandon and Lana where, where, yeah, you see that like, even if they are in this like super meager situation there, they eke out a lot of, of beauty, a lot of really beautiful moments together. Yeah. And like, you know, when Lena brings him home for the first time, she says, oh, don't look at my stupid house. And he says, I wrote this down because I thought it was so moving. I'm not looking at your stupid yeah. house. I'm looking at you. Yeah. And and I also made a note like yeah. how incredibly at ease and happy Brandon is when he's moving in the world as a man. And and, and no matter, I mean, all this other stuff that maybe you and I'm like, oh my God, he's got these like court summonses and he's got mm-hmm. no money and he has no car and he has no place to sleep. But he's so happy because he, he is who he wants to be in the world and everybody's accepting him. And that joy comes across so, I don't know, ultimately heartbreakingly uh, through Hilary Swank and everything else that everybody contributed to the movie. It's almost like there's this, um, you know, if there was an inner monologue moment, it would just be sort of this refrain of, mm. it's working. Okay, it's working. Like I can have a life. Yeah. I can be this person in the world and you know, we find out pretty late in the film that um you know, lots of the things that Brandon has been saying about his life, you know, the sister in Hollywood right. and the father in Memphis and all these things aren't true and and he says I hadn't been out of Lincoln mm-hmm. before I came here to right. Fall City, which is, you know, also in Nebraska and and I think that moment too you realize how young this person is. And how this really is his first step out the door from the world that he'd grown up in and the first chance. And again, I don't want to conflate the two experiences, but I think for a lot of us, the first time we move away from home in our late teens, whether it's for college or just to an apartment to go work, whatever it is, there's that moment of, oh, I might have a chance to be somebody a little different than everybody always assumed I was, than my parents, Mm -hmm. than people at school and this is a much bigger and more significant version of trying to make that kind of change. But it's at that life stage where it does kind of feel like maybe anything's possible until this movie just rips yeah. that hope away. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. One of the things, I mean, he was 21 when he was killed. And and he had spent, apparently, I did some research of the real Brandon Tina, and he had spent his whole life living in really hard circumstances mm-hmm. in Lincoln, as as he says in the movie, his father died before he was born. He grew up rough. There's also a history of sexual assault that I don't remember if he mentions or not in the mm-hmm. movie. But one of the things that I found really heartbreaking was when he was 
presenting as a girl, he was known for being really shy and awkward and difficult. But when in high school he started dressing and presenting as a man, all of a sudden his personality came out and he became much more beloved and much more outgoing. He also got into a lot more trouble. He got Ultimately he was expelled for talking back. But you see that story of this, of this young man finding his way, this young trans person finding his way in a world where, I mean, there was nothing to support him. Nothing. Nobody yeah. around who could talk to him about his experience. Certainly nobody in the culture. They say, oh, he's like this person who we know about. No, it was, he was just living this experience among people who had absolutely no way of understanding at all what he was. You see that even in some of the, uh, like the brochure that he has sort of tucked away in his bag about um, surgery. Oh God, the one they find later. And oh. the way that he eventually tries to, to explain um, sort of what's going on with him to the that oh, terrified God. cop after the assault. And just, you know, the even just the language. Again, this is, you know, movie comes out in 99, stories taking place in 93. And yeah, there's the, the language that, that he has to use to try to help people understand what he's going through is just doesn't even like, it's just so far. It feels like it must've been so long ago, but to think that this was only basically 20 yeah. plus years ago, you know, in, in a pre-internet world, there's so many things about that that I kept thinking about too. The lack of sort of phones and technology and internet to, to help people be able to Google their way to answers to understand themselves yep. better that we have now. And there's plenty of information on the internet that's no good, but it, it is a completely life-changing experience for somebody who, mm -hmm. you know, isn't just growing up in a rural place, but a rural place before the internet. Right. Like how different that is, is mm -hmm. also striking throughout the movie. You know, I, I, as I said, I didn't watch the movie before, but I'm almost, well, I am really glad that I didn't watch it when it came out because I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not ignorant now. I am, but I was much more ignorant uh, 20 years ago, like a lot of people mm -hmm. were. And I think that if I had seen the movie when it came out, I wouldn't have been able to understand what and who Brandon was in a way that thanks to a late life education, I'm better able to do now. Now I can't think. I've never, let me put it this way. I've never seen a more understanding depiction of a trans person in popular culture in that they just seem to understand what his inner life was and how he and, and why he went to the extraordinary lengths he went to express it. I think that the the credit to the filmmaker then in the moment works, but I think this movie would have been made very differently today, right? Like there would have been an uproar for this story to be made with a uh, lead actor right. who was not a trans man. And Hilary Swank still gets some sort of well-deserved criticism, I think, for, you know, there's the intent versus impact question, right? Like intent was definitely to honor this trans man and, you know, mentions him and his memory mm -hmm. by name and her Oscar acceptance speech and all that. But then so many people said that seeing Hillary Swank presenting as a very sort of feminine woman in the red carpet mm. leading up to that Oscar speech and everything else just muddied the waters and the understanding of what transgender people identities are to just a further degree. And and that's the core criticism, right, of having non-trans actors play trans characters is that it kind of, in a way, perpetuates the idea that this is all just about sort of um, 
external presentation right. as opposed to an inner life. The New York Times ran a 20-year retrospective about the movie, and that criticism came out. And as one trans person, a trans actor put it, you know, everybody thinks we're just women who are dressing as men, and who played Brandon Tina? A woman dressed as a man. And, yeah. and that sort of sums up the objection. We actually have Hillary Swank's Oscar acceptance speech. Let's take a listen to it. Their support. And last but certainly not least... I want to thank Brandon Tina for being such an inspiration to us all. Uh, His legacy lives on through our movie to remind us to always be ourselves, to follow our hearts, to not conform. I pray for the day when we not only accept our differences, but we actually celebrate our diversity. Thank you very much. Yeah, and and Hillary Swank at the time got both. It was noted at the time, and this will give uh, younger people a, a sense of how different things were twenty years ago. It was noted at the time that uh, Hillary Swank correctly gendered Brandon Tina in that speech. The fact that that Hillary referred to Brandon as a he that was like, oh my gosh, well, wow, that's really cool. When nowadays we just see that as absolutely required when you're talking about a trans person. But we've come a long way, and I, I think this movie did open some doors and did offer a window into an experience that you know i have no movie that i can think of or that i could could research and find like you're saying has as sort of complete and detailed a portrayal of the life and inner life of a trans character until this film and so i think you have to give it some credit for the things that then followed that that leaned on people's understanding and acceptance of this being something that, you know, one is a, a, a character in a movie that people will watch and, and feel empathy and compassion for and be invested in. Because as we know, people are very skittish about making movies about anything other than the things people have always made movies about, which is straight white men. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> Which we see a lot in 99, right? Yeah. yeah, Which we saw a lot of in 99. But, you know, things that, that follow, um, you know, the, the more I think about them, the more I, I couldn't come up still with any as any portrayal as complete of a trans man uh i feel like in the last decade especially and in just the last few years in tv and movies we've seen many more transgender female characters yes um orange is the new black laverne cox is you know having this great career there's other other shows like transparent you know again which have have the issue of having um jeffrey tambor playing the lead character as opposed to a trans person playing a trans person mm-hmm. but there's just it sounds like so much progress to count on one hand and run out quickly of the examples but all the ones that i think we have in in this sort of modern moment are still devoid of trans men but i i just i just think it's it's fascinating to look back at this movie and wonder how it affected a whole generation of queer folk who just hadn't seen anything like anything they had experienced on screen before. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to put it in its time. The other criticism that you hear, and it was mentioned in that article, is how come whenever we finally get a movie about a trans person, it's about a trans person being raped and murdered? How come it has to be a tragedy? Yeah. And, and that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I understand that. But, but then again, I'm old. <laughs> And I remember when Philadelphia came out, for example, and there was the same criticism. It was like, okay, finally we have a major movie star, Tom Hanks, playing a gay man. This is amazing. How come he has to die? 
And I'm like, I'm old. I remember when like gay people on screen were John Ritter in Three's Company in which he's pretending to be gay by literally letting his wrist go limp. So maybe it's easy for me to say, but the progress is, is noted in increments. And yes, it is a terrible, terrible story about this person. And it probably wouldn't have been made if Brandon Tina had somehow been able to go on and live a wonderful life as a trans man. And, but it got made and movie viewers, including ultimately me, were able to look at a screen and see a brilliantly made, heartfully acted movie that actually depicts the life of a trans person. So I, I'm not going to tell people to, to, to be happy with what you got, but I, I can just tell you as somebody who, who, who needs help understanding what other people's lives are like, this movie helped me. And maybe that's, that's a good thing, I hope. There's a documentary that came out earlier this year called Disclosure. It's about trans people in media, kind of across the history, especially of movies. And essentially, they're just interviewing a bunch of people about um, some of the seminal films that have trans representation. And they talked about Boys Don't Cry. And Laverne Cox is actually featured in this film. And here's what she has to say about Boys Don't Cry. After... I saw that film, and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I hear people say, but it's based on a true story. But why is this the kind of story that gets told over and over again? I think that speaks exactly to to what y'all are talking about. And, you know, to kind of see the other kind side of the coin uh, in that film, Disclosure, actor Michael Cohen also talks about what it was like for him to see it. My girlfriend at the time said, do you want me to come with you? I'm like, no, I have to see this alone. She says, are you sure this could be painful? I'm like, I have to do this alone. And I went to the theater on the Carlton at near Young Street in Toronto, and I went in and watched that movie, and I was blown away. It resonated so deeply for me. And, you know, I don't know, it, it reminded me of something else that comes up in Disclosure, which is a statistic that's still pretty current that apparently only about 20% of Americans know a trans person personally, even in 2020. And, and so the idea that like media representation is especially essential because for a lot of us, that's the only way we're learning about these things, which I think Peter kind of speaks to your point. Yeah. Again, just to make the point, seeing these things on screen, whatever the flaws helps if they're done well, and this one, God, was done well. I think the question, though, is who who does it help, you know? And I think it's great that it helped you. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely but right. But I think, like, imagine being a 14-year-old who thinks maybe they're trans and sees this movie and thinks, this is the only future I can have as a trans person. Yeah, I, I, I you're right. I, I got nothing to say about that. I, 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 and, so I'll say nothing. yeah i mean i i greta i think the it's it's absolutely true that this movie can read as just sort of a warning to stay yeah like don't do that don't risk trying to be who you think you really are you know but also but also brandon finds love and finds somebody who continues to love him after it's disclosed and after it's made clear to lana that um you know his gender identity doesn't match his biology and his body. Um, she still mm-hmm. loves him. 
mm-hmm. and still wants to be with him. And that, even though it is snuff, like his life is literally snuffed out moments after that, um, he does find acceptance and love. It's just from somebody who doesn't have the power to, in that moment, uh, stop what happens next. I went down a rabbit hole of research like I sometimes do. And, and, th- and one of the things I found out was this movie very, very, very closely tracks what really happened down to the names of the characters. Well, except for one actually pretty important distinction. And, and what were you going to say? Because it th- might be what I was going to say. Go ahead. Uh, is it about Philip Divine? Yeah. The, well, no, actually, although I read about there, there, there was a there was a third victim in the murders. There was a third victim. Yeah. Who was a black man, which um, Tik Milan actually talked about in that disclosure documentary. And I thought it was really let's listen to that clip, too. There was a black man there who got killed, who was like his buddy, who was a friend and ally to him. And that guy was completely erased from the film. And that changed that changed the film for me. You know, so um, because it's this it's it's the erasure of of black people. So it's like you can't have like queer trans people and blackness in the same space at the same time. So what's to say about my queer trans black ass? Again, this is taking away representation and telling me that I can't exist in my blackness, in my queerness, in my transness. I can't bring all of this in at the same time. Yeah. And in fact, I read an interview that or an article that in which Kimberly Pierce talked about that there was a third person in the house who was murdered the same day that Candace, that's not a real name, and Brandon were murdered, who had been involved with this group of people was dating somebody. and, And Kimberly Pierce basically said, yes, but in order to describe his story so that he could be there and his death would have resonance, it was just too much. We couldn't like we couldn't fit that into the movie given the story we wanted to tell and the time we had to tell it. And she expressed great regret for that. Uh, I don't know whether that'll matter to the people who are upset. What I was thinking about, though, was something slightly different. One way in which the movie departs from what I understand to be the documentary record is that Lana says, the real person, that once she, Lana, found out about Brandon's gender identity, she ended the relationship with him. She accepted him. She did, in fact, bail him out of jail, as you see. But that was it. No more relationship. It was over. Mm. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. And, and instead, what the movie gives us, and this, I think, is the only real fiction in the movie, is that lovely evening yeah. with Brandon and Lana in which she completely accepts him and she says, uh, like, like, I don't know how to do this, meaning how to have sex with somebody who's biologically female. And Brandon says, I think you'll figure it out. And it's a lovely moment that he gets to have. It's his most fulfilling moment as a human being. And of course, it, it's, it's both beautiful that the filmmakers gave him that and really sad they had to make it up in order to give him that. It's interesting because that, that moment just struck me as out of place in the timeline of what we were being presented. Yes, me too. Because yes. the assault and rape had happened just before. Right, his, he's still bloody. He's like... Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting to realize. Like, yeah, no, that was like a fantasy that the filmmakers wanted for the character, not what yeah. that character had or was maybe emotionally oh, like in a in a space to consent to at that moment. More about Boys Don't Cry in just a minute. 
this the murder happened in 1993 it was covered in a variety of different ways shortly afterwards using a variety of different pronouns for brandon um it seems like one of the bigger stories to pick it up came out later in 94 and one of which was the village voice donna minkowitz wrote a huge feature about brandon also misgendering him um it and that's essentially what the inspiration for the movie Boys Don't Cry came from is that Village Voice article. There was also a documentary right. about Brandon Tina that came out in '98. Um, but I think it is really interesting this article that that Donna Minkowitz wrote 20 years after her original feature about Brandon. The headline of which is "How I Broke and Botched the Brandon Tina Story." Right. Um, I highly recommend it if you're remotely interested in journalism, just because the extent to which she very honestly analyzes how badly she screwed up the original story is, and the honesty that she comes at it from and, and the extent to which she says, I was coming from a super misinformed place about the trans community. And I've learned a lot since, and here's what I've learned, I think was fascinating and, and extremely important. Yeah, it's also really interesting that that mistake, that misgendering, all that other mistakes she made, did not come from a place of like bigotry or ignorance as we think of it, but her own very specific political views about gender and queerness that she brought into it as, as a queer woman yeah as a queer woman from new york and and which she all cops to but it's a fascinating document as how even the most well-meaning people look at these issues through particular lenses and and it's it's very hard to get out of them let's listen to a voicemail here's jonah from chicago Hey, Nerdette. It's Jonah from Chicago. Uh, I just finished watching Boys Don't Cry. Um, I didn't really know anything about it uh, before I started watching it. I think part of what made it so powerful is that the characters didn't seem like actors. They just felt like real people, um, just in dialogue. And I think they didn't look like movie stars in makeup the way we're used to watching. I feel like there was something different about the lighting, too, that kind of gave it that sense. Yeah. Um, Wow. Uh, I'll echo something. I noticed the lighting too. The movie seemed, I'm sure it was very artful and this wasn't the case, but it seemed to be shot entirely with natural light. Like they were, the darks, when it was night, it was really dark in the way it really is and not the way it is in movies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, to that point, zeroing in on Lana as a character for a moment. Chloe Sevigny's character, yeah. Yeah, the, the complicated relationship that she has with Brandon is of course the crux of the film, but what a heartbreaking character she is all on her own because of this clearly abusive and strange relationship that she's had with Peter Sarsgaard's character Mm -hmm. since she, as she says at one point, she was 13 years old and writing him letters in prison. And he comes out of prison feeling like he owns her in this strange way. And his, and her mother is oddly complicit in this clearly dysfunctional relationship. It's really, really um, uncomfortable the whole time. Oh God. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is obviously a dark conversation about a dark movie, but just I, I just want to bring it home to something that's so beautiful, which is I think Hilary Swank is so good in this movie. I mean, I know we've talked about the issues of representation, uh, and, and I totally buy that, but God, she did a good job. There's not a single moment in that movie in which you do not understand on a visceral level how Brandon sees himself and how that controls everything. She clearly made an attempt at least to 
make this story not just a film but but a act of activism for lack of a, a better term and in in some of the you know ways that she talked about the film going forward and and all that and you know it, there's a lot of roles i think where like there's a middle ground where you're like am i doing more harm than good is is the point of this movie going to resonate with people or is it going to reinforce people's stereotypes this movie because it's so tragic and because it's so brutal i think at least it ca- it can't have um read as a comedy to anyone accidentally no. read as a you know but there but there are certainly roles where you know r- that kind of representation maybe does like well that's uh, fall in a gray area yes well and that's actually what a lot of that documentary disclosure is about is the idea that like in the for the majority of film history what we see are like hilarious cross-dressing men and that's kind of the extent right. of what we you know which is like yeah great like it's terrible obviously it shouldn't right. be a laughing it's, matter it, yeah i mean it's it's some like it hot right white christmas for goodness sake oh god yeah so i mean mrs doubtfire right i mean yeah. there's so many yep tootsie yeah. Tootsie, or or even if you want to get really down to the dark well, Silence of the Lambs. Yes, that one is mentioned in the doc too. I do think that's a an important way for people to understand that it's not just about fashion choices or hairstyles or you know these these very surface level decisions that we make about our appearance, because particularly if you're a, a cis person. And you feel sort of like there's no really decision or choice to be made. You just kind of wear the clothes that you've always grown up wearing. They never felt, mm-hmm. you know, and you never felt out of place. You never felt sort of uh, like you were hiding something or trying to present something. You, you don't have to think about it, right? Like it's that's the privilege of being cis and straight. It's I think you don't have to be going well, what will people think if I do this versus this because my heart is here and my head is here? And and all of that, um, particularly as a very young person, makes it so clear that like any any small choice that you try to make to step in the direction of doing something that feels more authentic often gets ridiculed right away, right? And, and if your impulse and your instinct is to just like be a cis dude who wears jeans and a t-shirt then you've never had to like wake up in the morning and decide how much of myself can I be today how safely can I be myself today and the weight of that I think this movie helps people maybe start to understand a little bit and that's the power of narrative right because again like Greta as you were saying earlier if 20% of people Mm -hmm. still was it 20% know a trans person yeah, so 80% of Americans say they don't know a trans person. They don't personally know a trans person, yeah. And we know from from so many other civil rights struggles that as soon as a human actually comes in contact with another human mm-hmm. in a meaningful way, their politics start to change, right? Whether that's LGBT rights, whether that's race, you know, it's it's really much harder to to have hatred for something you don't understand once you start to understand them once you start well once you start to see people as people and this movie i think makes it so apparent that brandon for the sort of foolish youthful decisions that he makes in terms of speeding and stealing and some of these other things is just such a sweetheart who wants the exact same things we all want which is somebody to care about them and to feel safe and to feel loved 
Well, I know I mentioned that documentary disclosure about 10,000 times in this conversation. I do highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. I think it's a really great, enlightening watch. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, Nerd Out Book Club, actually, back in June, we talked about a book called The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And in it is a trans character, and the storyline around him is... It's just all beauty, and it's nice to kind of have that in my mind as I think about this story, too, just to know that that exists. So I highly recommend that as well. Of course, there are many more, too. Can we do something cheerful next week? <laughs> what do we got? Yeah, what do we got let's do up? 10 Things I Hate About You. There you go. Now we can go back to our usual japery. <laughs> yes. Is japery a word? Sounds it, weird. I, yeah, it is. It's one of those words I like to use to annoy people how annoying I am, even when I haven't been annoying for a short period of time. <laughs> well, he's back, ladies and gents. <laughs> he's back. The patriarchy speaking, so ladies be quiet. Peter Sagal is the worst. I knew we couldn't get to the end without one. There it is. <laughs> the show is produced by me, along with Justin Bull, and our excellent intern, Isabel Carter. Brendan Banizak is our executive producer and our theme music is composed by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. We will see you next week for 10 Things I Hate About You.